It's good to be back with you this morning. I was filling the pulpit last week at Westview Church, which is one of the churches in our pillar network, and it was good to be with them and good to be fellowshipping with their body, but I really missed you guys and missed being here and worshiping together. Uh, I've only missed a few Sundays since we planted, and every time it just makes me uh, really thankful for our body and for the way that we love and serve each other. So good to be back And I don't have plans to be anywhere else for a while, so that's good. Uh, But the Lord has once again showed us grace. And what a good morning so far. Isn't it great? I mean, great worship, great testimonies. And we got picnic coming up after church, and so I'm really excited, if you can't tell. I love Sundays. Thankful for David's exhortation about the Sabbath. That was excellent. But this morning, on our journey through the Psalms now, we come to Psalm 20. We started two summers ago working through, and so today we are on Psalm 20. But I don't want you to turn there quite yet. We're going to start by reading another passage. Now, maybe you read this psalm in preparation. We send an email out usually every week that says something like, please read the text ahead of time so you can be familiar, know where we're going, etc., etc. And maybe you were reading Psalm 20 and going, okay, he's praying for somebody. Who is it? Right? There's all these pronouns, you, we, his, all this kind of stuff. Who is the subject of this psalm? Now, it would be a mistake for us to say, well, it must be us. David's just praying for the people of God. We're the people of God, so may the Lord accept our offerings. May he answer our prayers. We're far too quick to inject ourselves into the Bible sometimes. And if you get in the habit of doing this, then you read, and it's like, well, of course, I'm significant. I'm a child of God. This must be talking about me. And there are certainly things that address us specifically, but this is not one of those cases. And that's why I want to start instead by having you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I think what's going on here is we're going to see some of this covenant language that God speaks through the prophet Nathan to David and see David's response to this. And that is going to give us a key. That's going to give us an insight into what Psalm 20 is really talking about. So I invite you to open your Bibles there, 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to start reading in verse 12, and I invite you to follow along. 2 Samuel 12 through 16. So this is God speaking through the prophet Nathan to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever." So God promises David, more than a promise, this is a covenant that cannot be broken. And he gives to David, he says, your kingdom is going to be established after you. Okay, it's not going to stop when David dies. There's going to be a continuation of the Davidic kings. The kings that come, as he says, from your own body. That just means in the line of David, his son, grandson, great-grandson, and so on and so forth. So God promises these things to David, and then drop down just a little bit to verse 25. Now this is David's response to the covenant. And now, O Lord, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. 
and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. So David has this understanding that his line is going to continue. There's going to be kings after him who are going to continue in his line. Now, turn to Psalm 20. Just to the right, about a half an inch in your Bible. This is our text for this morning. And as you're turning there, I'm just going to tell you that I believe David, in this text, is praying for the kings who are coming after him. He is making requests that these men follow in the law of God, that they walk according to the law, that God hears them and answers their prayers. And I'm going to tell you why I think this as we move forward. So turn to Psalm 20 and follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, I pray that this morning now as we look to your word for instruction and encouragement, for strength maybe for some of us, for dependence, would you teach us now? This might not be a text that we immediately go to for encouragement and for hope, but it is an encouraging and hope-filled text. And so I pray, Lord, that through your spirit, you would come now and be our teacher. Take me out of the way and just let your word shine forth. I pray that you would give grace in the preaching and grace in the hearing. And above all, may Jesus Christ be praised. And it's in his name that we pray now. Amen. So what I want to do with this psalm is somewhat quickly go through it twice. So we're going to go through it the first time looking at some of the immediate context. Why David talks this way. There's significance to this. And then we're going to hinge with a text from Matthew's gospel, and we're going to look at parts of this again in light of the great king who fulfills and characterizes all of these things that David is talking about, and that is where our hope is found. So I hope you're ready for this. Let's begin right at the top of chapter 20 of Psalms. The exact situation now that prompts David to pray this way, see, he says, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. We don't have to stress out too much about identifying exactly what's going on, but given the language and given what he's talking about, I think we can use what I called sanctified speculation. Be really careful, don't use that too much. But I think we can assume that he's talking about something that threatens the nation as a whole. Okay, if you understand a little bit about kings and kingdoms, you know that the king is representative of the kingdom. 
as goes the king, so goes the kingdom kind of a thing. You know what I'm talking about? So when he prays for this, he knows that there's a situation where the king is going to have to make decisions, the king is going to have to make plans and strategies, and so he asks that in this day, God would give assistance. And as we move through the psalm, we're going to see this solidarity between the king and his kingdom, that they're going after the same thing. There's not a separate uh, goal here. They are both after the salvation of God being demonstrated through the king and thereby coming to his people. So we're going to see them asking for the same thing when we get down to the end and hear the language of us and we. That's the people of God. But for now, just know that they're going after the same thing. So the solution to this trouble, to this crisis, whatever it may be, probably either political or military crisis, would be that the name of the Lord would protect the king and his people. Now this might seem like kind of a strange way to put it. Wouldn't we just say, may the Lord protect his people? I mean, the Lord is the one who's strong. Why say, may the name of the Lord protect you? What's in a name? Well, a lot. <laughs> in this case, of course, when we're talking about the name of God, in, in, just to give you a little Israelite background, in Numbers chapter 6, we have this Aaronic blessing. So Aaron is the priest alongside Moses, and God gives him this blessing that he is to pronounce over the people. We still use it today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, so on and so forth. We're familiar with that. But then immediately following that, this is what it says, and this is Numbers 6.27. So if Aaron does this, when he pronounces this blessing over the people, so then shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. There's so much more in the name of God than just what we call him or what he is recognized by. There is power, there was power, and there is still power in the name of God. And his name, especially in these contexts, is inseparably tied to his reputation, his fame, what he is known among the peoples as having done. So, <clears throat> excuse me, when Israel leaves Egypt and they get into the promised land and God is doing all of these miraculous things, he's defeating armies, he's protecting his people, he's providing for them in unusual ways, the nations around Israel hear them attribute all these things to Yahweh, therefore his name becomes something that people fear. Israel comes to your border and you go, wait a minute, this is Israel whose God is Yahweh? We know about him. We know his power. We know his might. We know what he can do. He defends his people. So there is power in the name of the Lord. And so when David then comes to this psalm and he asks that the name of the Lord protect the people, two things going on. First of all, <clears throat> this is talking about the reputation of God, what all of Israel knew God was able to do, and it is also a reminder, don't forget where your help comes from. It's not just some nebulous, unknown God who is off in the peripherals over here and happens to once in a while do something for you. This is Yahweh, I am the God of Jacob, and his reputation is tied up in his name. So David prays now for the kings and the kingdom that is going to come after him, that the name of God would protect the chosen king, the Lord's anointed one. Now, how does God do this? How does this protection come? Look at verse 2. By sending help and support. 
the sanctuary was where the presence of God dwelt. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And it was the place of God's actual dwelling. It symbolized his presence with his people. Zion, you see these two things from Zion and from the sanctuary? Zion was God's holy hill. We read Psalm 2, and we see that God has set his king on Zion, on his holy hill. And from there, the king is to rule with justice and power, executing the will of God on the people. So we have these two things. How does God come to aid? He comes through his presence. That's represented by the sanctuary. And he comes with his power. That's represented by the hill of Zion where God has placed his king. And now the assumption as we move on from this text in verses 3 and 4 is that the king is walking according to the law of God. If God is to remember the king's offerings, if God is to look at the sacrifice of the king and say, that's pleasing to me, I'm going to answer that, this assumes that the king is doing what the king should do. Right? God is not going to answer the prayers of someone who does not give one rip about God, but is just crying out in some kind of desperation. This assumes that the king is walking according to the law of God. God will not grant the desire of the heart if the desire of the heart is contrary to God. That's pretty basic, right? We understand that. The assumption here is that this king is a Psalm 1 kind of king. He meditates on the law of God. He takes delight in the law of God. He is rooted and planted in the word of God. Therefore, his desires, his motives, the things that he wants are in alignment with the word of God. And if this happens, if the king lives this way, if he keeps in step with the law of God, then there should be confidence that verse 6 will happen. David says, I know that the Lord will save his anointed. That's confidence. He doesn't say, I hope. He says, I know. I know that this will happen. When the future king aligns himself with the Lord, when he calls on the Lord for help, when he is operating in a way that honors God, you can have confidence that God is going to answer this king because he is walking according to the word. Now, the reality that God hears the prayers of the righteous is all over the scriptures. And I just want to include these other two texts because I think they should be a tremendous encouragement to us. Psalm 34, 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Proverbs 15, 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. So when this king conducts himself in a way that honors God, that promotes the law of God, when he lives out what it means to be a righteous and godly king, God will hear and God will answer. And that's exactly what David is praying for as we move through here. Now, even though God is in his holy heaven, you see that phrase that as he is high and lifted up above us, he's not too far off to hear, he's not too far off to help, and he will come to the aid of his anointed king. Is David's desire, and I'm sure the desire of these kings. At least David hopes so. Now as we keep moving and we come to verse 7, I'm just curious, I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but how many of you would recognize the name Steve Green? Anyone remember Steve Green? Steve Green was a Christian, contemporary Christian songwriter in the 80s and 90s. I think he's still around. I guess I haven't checked for a while. 
But he had this song, 1994. It was called, We Trust in the Name of the Lord Our God. It was really catchy. And we heard it all the time growing up. And when I was going through this, a song came to mind because it is taken directly from Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we, the people of God, trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, in the ancient Near East, Israel and the surrounding areas, horses were a symbol of strength. They were a symbol of power and authority, especially of military might. The generals and the commanders of the armies would ride these huge horses that were decked out with all kinds of stuff, and they became a symbol of power. You can even see this in a lot of the ancient architecture, that there were statues and monuments of commanders and generals and kings riding on their horses because that is where the power was. So the kings of the land would acquire and accumulate tons of horses. We see Solomon do this, and it's not a good thing. Because early in Israel's history, before they ever had a king to sit on the throne, God warned them about accumulating wealth in the form of horses. Listen to this. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 17. God is giving instruction to the nation of Israel as they're going to come into the promised land. He knows that they're going to get influenced by everything around them. And so he gives them these commands. He gives them these instructions. Deuteronomy 17, this is verse 14. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you and, you, and it passes into you and you dwell in it, then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers, you shall set a king over you only. This is verse 16. He must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Is God concerned with horses? The four-legged, big-hoofed things? Not necessarily. He's concerned with dependence and pride and false senses of security. He knows that the heart of the king is easily bent towards self-exaltation, self-promotion, displays of power. And like I said, this is exactly what the nations around Israel did. They would accumulate and accumulate and accumulate so that they had this show of force. Look at all that I have. Look at, you can't touch me. I've got horses. Interesting little side note, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem... He doesn't ride on a big horse. He comes in on the lowliest animal he probably could have ridden, a donkey. Interesting. So God's not overly concerned with the horses, but he is concerned with the posture of the king's heart. He's concerned with pride, self-exaltation. Therefore, the warning to the nation of Israel is don't fall into this. Don't get into this trap. And even David recognizes this in verse 7 of Psalm 20 when he says, yeah, some trust in horses, some trust in chariots and their military might basically in human strength, but the people of God will put their trust in God alone. Horses fail. Horses die in battle. Horses pass away with old age. God never will. So the encouragement that David is passing on to these kings is don't put your trust in fleeting human power, but put your trust in God, who is everlasting, 
and will never fail you. Now finally, look at verse 9 of chapter 20. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Now verse 9 is very similar, right, in the, in, to verse 1. Verse 1, may the Lord answer you in the day of the trouble. May the Lord your God protect you. So we have this calling on God for protection on both ends. This is called an inclusio, or you can think of it as a bracket. So we have the, kind of the same thing at the top as we do on the bottom. That means that as we work our way through, we can see that there is a common theme. There is a similar cry in all of this psalm, and it is for the deliverance of God's people through God's king. David's not only praying for the people, but he's praying for their leader because he knows that as goes the king, so goes the people. You got a strong king, you got a strong people. You have a weak little snivelly king, you're going to have a weak little snivelly people. That's the way it goes because the king is the representative. Now in verse 9, it's kind of hard because these lines, these last two lines are right on top of each other. But David is not asking that the king would answer when he calls. Okay, look at these last two lines. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. He's not saying, may the king answer us when we call. These are two separate lines here. So two requests, if you will. O Lord, save the king. End of sentence, punctuation. May he answer us when we call. Remember I said when we started that there's this solidarity, this common interest between the people and what they want and between David and what he desires for the king and, Lord willing, what the king desires. They're all after the same kind of thing. So the victory of the king becomes the victory of the people. The salvation of the king becomes the salvation of the people. You're getting kind of this theme that's going on here? Now at this point, we have to ask. At least you should be asking. So what? What does it matter that a king 3,500 years ago was collecting horses for himself? What does it matter if someone that far removed from our immediate context acts this way or acts this way? What, what, why should Psalm 20 matter to you? So glad you asked, because now I get to tell you the answer. You don't have to turn here, but it, it matters because of the first words of the New Testament. The very first words in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 1, verse 1, says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Remember 2 Samuel 7 that we opened with? When it said that this kingdom coming after David would be established forever and it would come from his body, mean in his line that the Messiah, that the future now would be in the line of David. And we read in Matthew, this is a book about Jesus Christ, the son of David. Hmm, okay. Now maybe we have a little more to work with. Now maybe we can see that when David prays in Psalm 20, when he's saying these things, when he's asking these things for the, his posterity, his future that's coming after him, he's not just telling of what the future kings ought to be like, he is telling what the future king will be like. He has hope in the line of human kings, but there is confidence in Jesus Christ, the great king, who characterizes everything that we have seen in this psalm. 
Let's just go over really quickly. We're not going to spend a ton of time, but I want to bring some New Testament texts to show you Jesus and his fulfillment of this and why this is such good news for you this morning. I want you to leave here with confidence and hope. If you don't understand the Jesus connection, you'll miss it. And you'll leave here going, I better return the horses that I just bought. It'll be the wrong thing to say when you leave here, okay? Keep your horse, but trust in Jesus. So let me show you what's going on. Read Psalm 20, verse 2 with me again. May he send help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Now we said earlier when we saw verse 2 that it was telling us of God's presence and his, made po- and his power that were made known to the king, that were made available to the king through the sanctuary and through Mount Zion. And Remember that just a minute ago? And so we can ask then, when Jesus was here, when he lived, when he did his ministry, when he was on earth, God also provided him with his presence and his power. How did he do it? Through his spirit. The presence and the power of God are made manifest in the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the synagogue and he quotes from the book of Isaiah And he says that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And he has anointed him to preach the good news and to bring freedom to the captive and to loose the bonds of those who are in bondage. All these things. And he does these things by the Spirit of God because in the Spirit of God is his presence and his power. Likewise, at Jesus' baptism with John the Baptist, he goes down into the water and when he comes up, the Spirit of God descends upon him. It's a sign of approval from God the Father, and it is the enabling of Jesus to do his earthly ministry. So Jesus experiences, Psalm 20, verse 2, help and support in the form of the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, may he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Did the Father accept the sacrifice of Jesus? Did he look with favor upon the offering of his life? Yes. (laughs) Yes, or you and I aren't here. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12 says this, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus' sacrifice was perfect. His sacrifice was complete. His sacrifice was enough to cover the sins of every child of God's. And God looked upon that sacrifice and he said, Yes, it is enough. And he raises Christ from the dead as his seal of approval. Isn't that great? That God raised Christ from the dead, which shows us the perfection of Jesus' sacrifice was enough. And God says, I approve of that. Now all this time, keep in the back of your mind, as goes the king, so goes the people. Let's look at a couple more. Verse 4 of Psalm 20. May he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. If Jesus is this great king, what was his desire? What were the plans of Christ and were they fulfilled? The desire of Jesus' heart, we see this numerous times in the Gospels, was to do the will of the Father. And it was fulfilled. 
He did it. From Hebrews chapter 10, again, a little bit earlier in verse 5, this is a quotation of Psalm 40, but there's some language added here that make it specifically about Jesus Christ. So Hebrews chapter 5, sorry, chapter 10, verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not taken delight. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. That was Jesus' mission. That was the desire of his heart. And praise God, he was obedient to that and fulfilled it. Or there's no redemption. There's no salvation for you or for me if Jesus doesn't come and perfectly do the will of the Father. So, did God grant his heart's desire? Yes, he did. And in doing so, Jesus purchases a people for his own possession. One more, Psalm 20, verse 6. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven. And we said when we saw this, and this was a statement of confidence, that if the king lives in accordance with the law of God, that there is every reason to expect that God will honor his prayers, that he will hear his prayer and answer him in his trouble. So we can ask, did God hear and answer the prayers of Jesus? Anywhere in the New Testament do we see explicitly that his prayers were heard and answered. We see Jesus praying a lot, setting us an example, how to pray, when to pray, what to pray. But did the Father hear and answer those prayers? Now we can make a theological assumption, right? We could put things together and say, okay, Jesus is God's son. We know that the Father is with him through the Spirit, so obviously he heard. We could do that, but that's not what I'm talking about. There is, in the New Testament, evidence explicitly that Jesus was heard because of his righteousness. This is again the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 7. Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Are you getting this? Everything that Psalm 20 is talking about, all the hopeful language that the coming king would walk this way, pray this way, stand up for his people in this way, provide salvation for them. All these things are not fulfilled in the human line of kings. Good grief. If we follow that thread from David on to the end of the New Testament, it is a mess. But God in his wisdom did not just provide the human part of the kingly line. He provides the divine part of the kingly line in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Why should Psalm 20 matter to us? Because Jesus fulfilled it. And the victory of the king becomes the victory of the people. The salvation of the king becomes the salvation of the people. These young people who are baptized here today they are a result of the obedience of our king. They are the benefactors of the salvation that Jesus Christ the righteous purchased. Because God heard his prayers, because God honored his sacrifice, 
because all of Psalm 20 is true of Jesus, we were able to celebrate these lives today. That's something to hope in, and that's something to be thankful for. Now I want to close by telling you two things that I don't want you to miss in this passage. There's two, I think, really good and helpful things that I want you to see here. First thing I don't want you to miss is that David, by praying this way, leaves us an excellent example that we should pray for the coming generations. Now it's always uncomfortable when I give points of application that I myself struggle with. And I don't do this nearly as much as I should. But do you know that as believers in Jesus, we ought to be praying for those who come after us. We ought to be praying things like Psalm 20, that they would walk according to the law of God, that God would be pleased with their life, that God would hear them when they call. I just want to encourage you, pray for future Children, future spouses, future fathers, mothers, elders, pastors, political leaders, state officials, that their hearts would be turned to God, that they would experience repentance and faith and salvation that the great King Jesus gives us. Pray for them. That's the first thing. Second thing not to miss. Don't miss the fact that because Jesus has perfectly achieved all this psalm talks about, if you belong to him by faith, that is, if you are a Christian, then you can have the same confidence that David has when he says, I know that the Lord will hear his anointed. If you don't belong to Christ, none of this applies to you. But if you are in Christ, if God has saved you from your sin and washed you with the blood of his son, you can have confidence. And that's why this is a hope-filled and life-giving psalm. Don't worry about the horses. Don't worry about relying on your own strength. Just trust in Jesus. And he'll give you everything that you need. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your providence, for the way that you have orchestrated the world. Every time we have opened your word together and we have seen new and encouraging things from your word, Lord, it's such a good reminder that you are so faithful and you care so deeply for your children. Thank you that you did not establish a kingdom and then leave it without a king. But in the person of Jesus Christ, your son, you have given us the King of kings and the Lord of lords who perfectly obeys, perfectly lives, perfectly keeps the law, and because of his perfection now, if we will receive the gift of salvation, all of that becomes ours by faith. And so, Lord, for the heart here that is weary, that is burdened down by the circumstances of this world and of life, refresh them in the knowledge that if they belong to you, Lord, all that they need has been purchased by Christ. Help them to lay their burdens down and receive freedom and forgiveness at the cross. 
And for those here who are apart from you, who do not yet know the freedom of forgiven sin and cleansed conscience, do that work this morning by your Spirit. Convict their hearts of sin and bring them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. God, you are the only one who can do this work, so please come. Work in this place. Help us to turn aside from ourselves May we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And we approach you in Christ's name. Amen.